The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Good morning again. Happy Father's Day. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, if you are a lady here, would you raise your hand? If you're not sure, ask your neighbor. They can probably tell you. Uh, one announcement we forgot to mention is this Tuesday uh, from 1 to 3 p.m. We are going to have a party at the playground for the ladies. And so uh, right here at church, there will be free coffee. Um, but you can bring your kids. If you don't have kids, you can still come. Just a time of fellowship. So that will be this Tuesday from 1 to 3 p.m. here at the church. And so um, if that's of interest to you, if you're available, it would be good to come and just hang out with some other ladies. Uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, we come to you Sunday after Sunday, uh, not only because you command us to do so, God, but because you are faithful. You're faithful to feed your flock with your word. You're faithful to feed us the gospel of grace week in and week out. And you are faithful, Lord, to change us and transform us and guide us and direct us, Lord. And so we come praying, but also expecting you to do the same today, God. And so, Lord, pray you would reveal the parts of our heart that maybe we have walled off from you or are hardened from you, Lord God, that you would soften them and that you would conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. If you would please open up to Acts chapter 21. It is page 930 in the Red Bible, page 1208 in the Children's Bible. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, there is a Bible in the seat in front of you. Please grab that. If you don't own a Bible, please take that with you. We love to give away Bibles, and so that is for you to keep. Uh, today, we are actually going to go straight into the map. And so I want to kind of walk you through today's passage. And so you can have this in mind as we talk about Paul's journey. Paul is ending his third missionary journey. And then at the end of this, we'll be really starting the last uh, saga of his life. And so we're going to start today in Miletus. And here Paul meets with the Ephesian elders. If you were here last week, Max reminded us of how Paul wept with them because he loved them so dearly. And so he travels this week from Miletus down to Patera, where he will load a bigger ship that is more seaworthy, and it is a cargo ship, and they will go to Tyre, which is not to be confused with Hubcap, and at Tyre, they will, he will visit with the church there uh, for seven days, and then come down to Polemus, and then down to Caesarea, and then he will end up in Jerusalem. And so that is the scope of the passage today and the direction of the passage today. So let's read together. Um, Acts chapter 21, verse 1 through 16. Acts 21, verse 1. And when we had parted from them, literally tore ourselves away from them, from the Ephesian elders, and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For the, there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. 
And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Polemus. And we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with them. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. This past week, uh, my family and I went to our denomination's general assembly. And uh, I will tell you, uh, that our denomination is not our gospel, but I, going to our general assembly, I was again so encouraged by our denomination, how they, how they hold forth the gospel of Jesus Christ and stand firm on the word of God. And so it was greatly encouraging. Uh, but on our trip there, we decided to make some sidetracks. And so we went through Washington, D.C. And as we went through Washington, D.C., we decided to spend two days at the National Mall. The National Mall, for those of you who are not familiar, is this long stretch, about two and a half miles, with various museums and memorials and statues and things of that sort. Well, one of the places we visited was the, the U.S. Capitol, uh, where Senate meets. And, and when we were there, uh, we parked our jogging stroller outside, and, and we locked it up, and we went in, and we went on this tour, tour, tour. I, I don't know if I say correctly, but you know what I'm saying. We went on the tour of the, the U.S. Capitol, and it was a wonderful a uh, little tour, and we came back out, and we were greeted by policemen with machine guns, um, because in our stroller, we had a, a backpack, and evidently, they frown on backpacks being locked up right outside the U.S. Capitol, and so uh, thankfully, my son Corbin thinks that's the coolest part of the trip, um, but, but all that to the side, uh, as we were traveling or as we were touring the U.S. Capitol, one of the rooms in that Capitol was called the National Statuary Hall. Uh, can anyone guess what this is filled with? Statues, good, you heard it. And if you walk through the National Mall, really through D.C., you see tons of statues of various men and women who have been pivotal in our nation's history. You will see small statues, you will see big statues, you will see gigantic statues. And not only are there statues, but there are also memorials, like the 
World War II Memorial, the Vietnam Memorial, the, the, the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial, and of course the Lincoln Memorial. And so as you walk and you see all these statues and these memorials, one of the things that you are overwhelmed with is how these people live their lives. You know, none of these people got statues or memorials because they got the highest score on Donkey Kong. And that's not why they get these, or because they learned how to retire early or how to take a nice, easy, safe life. These people have memorials and statues dedicated to them and honoring them because they took the hard path, because they didn't take the easy road, because they stood for something greater than themselves. They lived for a purpose bigger than themselves. They didn't just simply live a life of luxury, but they lived a life of great purpose, a greater purpose than even their own comfort. And so that's why we remember them. That's why we memorialize them. That's why they encourage us and challenge us. Because they lived out their courageous callings in life. So let me ask you, this is a question that I think is good to revisit often. Why do you wake up in the morning? What is the purpose of your life? What calling has God put on your life? Is it a calling to live for a purpose bigger than yourselves or simply a purpose to eke out an existence? To, to not sin too much today? Is, is, it, is it living just simply not to have a meltdown and to get to bedtime without falling apart? You know, I will confess to you that, that my heart is in this constant battle between two callings in my life. One calling is to live a life of self-gratification, to just simply live for my own pleasure, to, 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 to not worry about anybody else, and just simply live for myself, my own comfort, my own, my own self-centered lifestyle. And then there is the other desire, which is a desire to live for a purpose bigger than myself. To live a, a, a purpose-driven life, a passion-filled life, a self-sacrificial life for God and for his kingdom. And these are constantly warring against one another. I don't know if any of you can understand what I'm talking about, but I'm guessing you can. It's a constant daily battle for my soul and for what I am living for. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are reminded this day that we are not merely alive to breathe. But we are alive to live, and alive to live for a purpose bigger than ourselves. God has given each and every one of us a courageous calling, one that is worth waking up for, one that is worth living for, one that is even worth dying for. And so today, as we look at Paul's missionary journey, as he heads to Jerusalem, I want you to consider your calling, okay? What has God called you to. I also want you to count the cost of your calling. What does it cost you to fulfill this calling? And then I want to exhort and encourage and empower you to continue in this costly calling that God has called you to. So first, let us consider our calling. You know, the principal passage today is in Acts 21, but really the, the understructure, the girding of it, the foundation of it is found back in Acts chapter 20. Uh, Paul is issuing a farewell speech to the Ephesian elders. Again, Max talked about that last week in, in wonderful and beautiful ways. Uh, he knows that he'll never see him again, and so he's weeping as he says his farewell to them. But then in verses 22, he says what his calling is, a calling that God has put on his life. Paul says this in Acts 20, 22. He says, And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, 
constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me. This term constrained means that he was, he was bound like a prisoner, like there, someone else was in control of him. And what he is saying is that the Holy Spirit has bound me, has constrained me to this calling to go to Jerusalem, and I don't know what's going to happen there. And you know what? Paul, Paul may have wanted to, 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 to take, take a detour from this calling. He may have wanted to escape this calling, because as you read on, he says, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city, that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was the Apostle Paul, I would, I would probably have an inclination to avoid the cities, right? If whatever city I go to, there is affliction there and there is, there is suffering, then I would probably try to drift away to the countryside. But Paul knows to live outside of God's will, to live outside the calling that God has put on your life is really no life at all. To live a life of of simply luxury and self-centeredness is really a counterfeit life. If you remember, Paul, time and again throughout the book of Acts, has been called to these courageous callings that were were dangerous, that were life-threatening, to go and proclaim the gospel throughout the world. And many times he was beaten and even left for dead. He was opposed in every city, and yet he continued to go forward. And the question is, why? What, what, what encouraged him to continue in his calling, even though it included suffering? Well, as we read on in verse 24, he makes it very clear. Paul says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to Myself. Now, Paul's not saying that he's a worthless piece of junk that would be inconsistent with the rest of his theology, but Paul is saying, my desires, my comfort, even my very life is secondary to the calling God has put on my life. He goes on and says, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What is most precious to Paul? It is not his safety. It is not even his own life. But it is to run the course, the race that God has put before him, to fulfill the calling that God has put on his life. Paul continues in his calling because his calling is priority even over his very safety. And so when you consider your calling, what would you say it is? What, is? what is God calling you to? Maybe, you? maybe you've never considered this. Maybe you've never considered the fact that, that you have a divine calling from God. If I were to give you an index card, what would you write out? In one or two sentences, what is God calling you to? You may be here asking, well, I, I, I don't know. Um, how, do I, how do I discern this calling? Let me unpack that a little bit. That's a great question. How do I discern God's calling for my life? Well, well, first off, there's God's general calling, which is in his word, which is applicable to all of us, that we are to obey his word, that we are to trust in him as our savior, that, that we are to obey his laws, that we are to be faithful to the great commission. This is God's general will for all of us. But then God also has a specific will for each and every one of us, one that is unique to you, one that is unique to me. Paul had a unique calling. To, to minister to the Gentiles throughout the world. Maybe your calling is like Paul. Maybe you're called to go and be a vocational missionary. But most likely you aren't. 
maybe God's calling on your life is to be a teacher. And, and not just a teacher, but to be a teacher for Jesus. To know that, that you're teaching children is a ministry of God. It's an opportunity to express the love of Christ. Or maybe God is calling you to be a lawyer, but he's not just calling you to be a lawyer, he's calling you to be a lawyer for Jesus. That can actually happen. God doesn't just call us to be a barista, but a barista for Jesus. See, God's calling us is holistic. He doesn't call us all to be ministers because, because God's kingdom is bigger than this church. God's kingdom extends over every occupation, every vocation. It extends over the entire universe. And so he calls his people into every occupation to be a redemptive presence wherever they go. Now, if this isn't clear enough for you, if you still wonder, hey, what, what am I called to? Let me, let me give you a couple diagnostic questions. The first is this. How has God equipped you? How has God gifted you? What comes easy to you that is difficult to other people? I've shared this before. I'd love to be a country singer for Jesus. I'd love to be an NFL quarterback for Jesus, but there's only one problem. I'm not good at any of them, right? And so how has God made you good at something? How has he equipped you? And the second question is this. What does God excite the passion of your heart for? If you look earlier in this passage, in Acts 20, verse 16, we read that Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. This was a calling that Paul was enthusiastic to fulfill. He wanted to go to Jerusalem. God had burdened his heart for it. You know, a couple months ago, we, we put out a job description for a facilities manager. Gordon, sorry, where are you, Gordon? I'm going to embarrass you for a second. I'm sorry. Um, but, but Gordon was hired for the position, and Gordon is amazing at it. I mean, he tells me things that I had never considered, and I'm just like, I don't even want to know. You just go do it. So he knows what drains to put baking soda down, which so drains not to put baking soda down. He, he can move a thermostat. He can, he can move a wall outlet. He can do all of these things, and it's so awesome to see how God has gifted him for this position. But God has not only gifted him for this position, but he has given Gordon a desire for it. You see, the best part is that Gordon understands that this position as a facilities manager for a church is a ministry to Jesus. He understands that the way that he, he cleans things, the way that he set things up, is an opportunity to show people the love of Jesus Christ. It's a way to, to protect people, to create safety in our church. He understands that it's a way to minister to, to the pastoral staff as he takes loads off of me and Pastor Chad and Angie and David. You see, Gordon is not just a facility manager. He's a facility manager for Jesus. Amen? And so there is no unholy calling. Your job is not just a job. Every occupation is a holy endeavor when done for Jesus Christ. Colossians 3, Paul says this. He says, bond servants. Now, if you can imagine a least desirable job, bond servant probably beats it, okay? Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And he says this, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. How has God gifted you? How has God excited your heart? Consider your calling and fulfill your calling to Jesus for the glory 
of God. And so we are challenged to consider our calling. We are also called to count the cost of our calling. Back in verse 23 of Acts 20, as we were talking about, Paul was made aware by the Holy Spirit that going to Jerusalem wouldn't be easy. That in Jerusalem awaited him imprisonment and affliction. And then this is, this is pounded home throughout today's passage. It is reaffirmed at, at what it's going to cost him to go and fulfill his calling. As we look in verse 3 of Acts chapter 21, you can read along with me. We'll read quite a bit here. Acts, Acts 21 verse 3, it says, When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. All right, so, so Paul lands in Tyre. He wants to go and see the church. Uh, as far as we know, Paul has never been to Tyre, but he wants to go and fellowship and minister to them while he's there. And while he's there, somehow they're made aware by the Holy Spirit that when Paul is going to Jerusalem, that he is going to suffer. And so the response is, do not go to Jerusalem. Okay, continue forward. Verse 5. It says, when our days there were ended, we departed and went on a journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside of the city. And I love this, such a beautiful picture of fellowship. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Polemus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. Verse 8, on the next day we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, meaning he was one of the original seven deacons, but he was also a great evangelist, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Excuse me. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now, let, let me just back up a little bit. Agabus is a name that we've heard before. Back in Acts chapter 11, Agabus, Agabus actually made a prophecy that there'd be a great famine over the entire land. And it says that this actually did take place in the days of Claudius. And so Agabus was a prophet that was certified because he made this prophecy and it came true. And so Agabus makes this special trip all the way from Judea to Caesarea because Paul is there. Verse 11 says, And coming to us, he, Agabus, took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. So his belt was probably more like a sash, if you want to think of it that way. He said, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we, meaning Luke and the accompanying party, and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Now this is all very confusing. Because it seems like the Holy Spirit is speaking out both sides of his mouth. It seems like he is giving two different callings for Paul's life. Right? Last chapter we read that Paul was, was bound by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. That he had to go. But then here we get to these churches, and, and these churches through the Holy Spirit, they recognize that Paul is going to suffer, and they say to Paul, do not go to Jerusalem. And so the question is, what is, what is going on here? Because we know God doesn't contradict himself. Is, is Paul's calling to go or to not to go, to suffer or not to suffer? See, Paul is constrained by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. 
But the churches informed by the Holy Spirit tell Paul not to go. And the reason is not because the prophecies are different, but because the interpretations of the prophecies are different. You see, the Holy Spirit gives the same message to both. And the message is this. Paul is going to Jerusalem, and Paul is going to suffer. But they interpret it two very different ways, don't they? The church says, Paul, you're going to suffer. We love you. We care for you. We don't want you to suffer. Don't go to Jerusalem. But Paul says, no, I am bound by my calling, bound by the Holy Spirit to go into a place where I will suffer. It was one prophecy with two different interpretations. Maybe that's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. Or in 1 Thessalonians, he says, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Friends, the church's response to the prophecies that Paul would suffer was a loving response but it was not a correct response because they were more concerned for Paul's safety than they were for the will of God. You know, I can tell you, I can relate to those churches. My best friend in seminary, his name is Stephen, was called by God to go and minister among Muslims in foreign countries. And as he has gone and ministered among Muslims, he has, he has endured many hardships. Uh, he's had many unexplainable physical diseases as a result of it. Uh, his, his marriage has been under attack. He says it's like pouring miracle grow, being a missionary, pouring miracle grow on all your marriage problems and just, you know, festers. He, he has trouble finding a school for his kids to go to. Um, they don't have heating or air conditioning in some of the places that they've lived. They, they feel like a foreigner when they're there. They feel like a foreigner when they come back because the world's changed. America's changed in the past few years. And so they live this life, that, this calling that in, includes suffering. And so, so when my friend Stephen comes to visit, I'm so tempted, and, and I do it a little bit, and I, and I shouldn't, but I'm so tempted to try to woo him away from that. You know, to say, hey, come, come work in Green Bay. I don't really have the power to do this, but I say it anyways. Hey, come work at Jacobswell Church. You know, you, you don't have to raise support anymore. Your kids can go to a great school. You know, we could play on rec league sports together. It'll be a great time. Come here. You know, I want to woo him away because I love him. My intention is love, but I'm completely wrong in what I'm encouraging him to do because I'm not encouraging him in his calling, but I'm encouraging him to a life of safety and luxury. The church translated the prophesied suffering of Paul in Jerusalem as a warning to run away. But Paul translated the prophecy of suffering as an exhortation to stay. You know, as I read this passage, one of the questions that came to mind is, why did the Holy Spirit tell Paul this? I mean, if you were going to, um, if you were going to, to I don't know, suffer a, a tragic car accident next weekend, right, would you want to know? I wouldn't. I mean, I'd just be, all week I'd be kind of, you know, not sure what to do with myself, right? Why, why did the Holy Spirit tell Paul that you're going to suffer, that you'll be afflicted, that you'll be in prison, and not only tell him back in Asia, but then reaffirm it through the churches, well, I think the reason that the Holy Spirit made Paul aware of this and made the churches aware of this is so that Paul would endure the suffering, the persecution, and the imprisonment. 
And so that he and the church would not be surprised, that they would not mistake the persecution and the suffering as a result of Paul being outside of God's will, but that they would know that the suffering is because Paul is walking in God's will. Does that make sense? So, so if you can remember Job's friends, Job's friends, do you remember them? Job is suffering. What is their conclusion? You did something wrong, right? You're out of line with God's will. This is our propensity, even in the church today. If you are suffering, you're probably not doing God's will, right? Now, now God does give fatherly discipline, and so if we are suffering, it is appropriate to ask the question, Lord, are you disciplining me in some way because you love me and care for me and you're trying to bring me back into your will? But it's not a one-to-one correlation. If there is suffering, it may be because you are directly in God's will. One pastor, Crawford Loretz, put it this way. He said, if you're getting shot at, you know you're flying over the right target. Suffering is often a part of God's courageous calling on our life. Matter of fact, it might always be a part of our calling. In Matthew 16, Jesus says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. That sounds like suffering. And take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. And then in John 16, he says, in this world, here's a promise. Hang this on your fridge. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Following Christ's calling on your life will include suffering. That is part of the cost. If you are a firefighter for Jesus, you may suffer the ridicule of your friends. If you are a neighbor for Jesus, there may be some awkwardness between you and your neighbors. If you are an employee for Jesus that stands up for what is right, You may be passed over for a promotion or demoted or even fired. And so, friends, if you are suffering through something, know that this may be exactly where God wants you to be, to fulfill a courageous calling. We are to count the cost of our calling, the cost of following Christ, and acknowledge that He is worthy and that His plan is good. And so we count the cost of our calling, we consider our calling, but finally we also must continue in our costly calling. And this might be the most difficult of all. Again, Paul has been warned by the Holy Spirit that imprisonment and affliction await him. Agabus has come and says, your hands and your feet will be bound, which is affirmed later. His friends, the church has said, please do not go. Even his traveling companions say, don't go to Jerusalem. I mean, I think it's fairly easy to say that if Paul did not go, no one was going to oppose him, except for God. And so Paul reaches this fork in the road. He can either follow the calling of men, the calling of comfort and safety and prosperity, or Paul can continue to follow the costly calling of God. Verse 13 says, Then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart, for I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Notice Paul's heart is broken, not because he's going to suffer for Jesus, but because it breaks the hearts of those he loves. Verse 14, and since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus. 
an early disciple with whom we should lodge. You know, we know that the church did not persuade Paul from his calling to go to Jerusalem where suffering awaited him. But I wonder if Paul persuaded the church that that God's calling often includes suffering. I wonder this because they say, not our will, but the will of the Lord be done. And then they encourage Paul and they go with Paul and they support Paul. They travel to Jerusalem with him and they find a place for him to stay. You know, I wonder if, if we are persuaded this morning. Are we persuaded that the calling that God has on our life will include suffering? That, that, that the suffering does not mean we need to get out of the business of following God's calling, but that we need to dig in deeper. Maybe it's, maybe it's physical suffering from a loss of sleep to a loss of life, a relational suffering to losing an acquaintance to even being kicked out of your family. Maybe it's even emotional suffering from, from sadness to, to despair. But we are called to a calling that includes suffering. Are we persuaded by this? Are we persuaded that even though there is suffering, that following the calling of God is greater than comfort and security? Now you may ask the question, what kind of God would call us to a life that includes suffering? Which is a fair question and a difficult question. And it doesn't have an easy answer. But what we can know for sure by looking to the cross is that calling that includes suffering is not because God is not good or because God is not loving, but it is in fact because God is supremely good, because God is supremely loving. You see, in Matthew 16, Jesus asked the disciples, he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. What a great proclamation. But then the conversation continues. And we pick it up in Matthew 16, verse 21. I believe it's on the screen here. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. Does that sound familiar? Like Acts chapter 21? And on the third day be raised, verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. I find this so comical. Okay, here is Peter. He has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. He is the one who has created all things. And then he pulls him inside, listen, Jesus, I don't think you know what you're doing, right? Like, like suffering is not a part of God's plan for you. Stay here, stay with us, get famous, be prosperous. Don't go to suffering. Verse 23, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Why did Peter want for his loved one, for Jesus? What did he want? He wanted a calling of safety and peace. But this was not the calling of Christ. You see, we can follow God's calling even in the midst of suffering. Because while, while our calling, while Paul's calling may include suffering, Christ's very calling was suffering. Our, again, our calling may include suffering, but Christ's very calling was suffering. Jesus, like Paul, goes into Jerusalem. He is received warmly, but then he is bound and he is led to various rulers. He is declared innocent, but in an instant he is declared to death because the Jews so persuaded the leaders. 
Jesus has a crown of thorns beaten into his head. And as blood drips down, he has his back ripped off of him by 39 lashes. And then he is put, then a cross is put on him and he carries it up a hill where he lays down and he has nails put through his wrists and through his feet where he will Try to, try to breathe, but he will suffocate and he will be mocked and he will be humiliated by those going by and, and the very wrath of God will come down upon him. You see, his very calling in life was to suffer. Our calling may include suffering, but his calling was to suffer. And he was called to suffer for you and for me, to, to suffer in our place, to suffer for our sins, to suffer for our, our, our lethargic following of God's calling for our complacency in life. He was called to go and to pay the price for our sin. This was his calling. And he did not do it because he was, he was unable to get out of it. He, he tells us that, that he could have called down more than 12 legions of angels, but Christ suffered and he continued in his costly calling because his calling was to suffer for you and for me. Christ continued in his calling. Because of the love of God, because of the goodness of God, because of the faithfulness of God. And so why was Paul willing to go to Jerusalem? Why was Paul willing to go to a place where he knew he would suffer? Because that's exactly what Jesus did for him. And that's exactly what Jesus did for you and for me. John Piper in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, says this. He says, all heroes are shadows of Christ." All heroes are shadows of Christ. If you live out your calling, there will be suffering, but you will be a shadow of Jesus Christ. A shadow of the gospel and the glory of your Savior. Let me end with this. Patrick Henry Hughes was an oldest child, born about one year after his parents were married. They were so excited to meet their young one. Everything in labor seemed to be going well. They were expecting a nice, healthy baby. But when Patrick was delivered, uh, they noticed there was something wrong. Um, he had two very rare diseases, uh, and this is the first time one child actually had both of them in the same body. One of, one of the diseases was that he was born without eyes. The other is that he was born with constrained arms that, would, that he could never extend nor could he extend his arms, and so he was always kind of in a fetal position. And so the parents, night after night, would cry themselves to sleep. They loved their child, but they'd ask, God, why would you let this happen to him? Why would you let this happen to us? But then at about nine months old, they discovered that Patrick had an amazing talent. The dad would play a key on the piano, and he would play that key as well. And so he was extremely musically gifted. As a matter of fact, by two years of age, which this is so hard for me to imagine, but you can see video of this, they would call out a song and he would play it on the piano. Two years of age. Unbelievable. He was a, a brilliant, brilliant kid. He continued to grow and he did well in school. He was on the National Honor Society. Uh, he ended up getting into Louisville, the University of Louisville in 2006. And his reputation preceded him, especially his musical abilities. And so Dr. Greg Brine, who was the university's associate director of back, uh, bands, invited Patrick to come and join the marching band. Now, Patrick at first saw this as a cruel trick, that why would he call him to come and be a part of a marching band? I mean, he was, he was stuck in a wheelchair. But his father knew how much Patrick wanted to do this. 
And so his father, by the same name, Henry, sorry, Patrick Hughes, middle name Henry, was determined to make this a reality. And so he quit his job and took a job working nights at UPS. And so after a night of working at UPS, he would, he would get up in the morning after, I'm sorry, after a night working at UPS, he would go to bed for three to four hours. He would wake up and he would take his son to class after class after class. He would take notes for his son. son. He would help his son to study. And then he would take his son to marching band practice. And he would be out there holding the wheelchair. The son would be in all of the, the, the marching band garb, and he'd be there with his trumpet. And there would be his dad with, without, a, without one of the marching band outfits on. And he would be pushing his son around, wheeling him around. And his son was like 170 pounds, I think. So this wasn't light. But there he was going throughout the entire uh, escapade of the, the marching band routine. And, and matter of fact, if you went to a Louisville football game, you would have seen this father pushing the son around. You see, as we talk about God's calling on our life today, there is a great reminder that fatherhood is a calling from God. It is a calling that includes suffering, no matter who your child is. Uh, a, friend, a friend texted me the other day and said, hey, do you golf? And I texted him back and said, I have four kids. And he said, do you golf? I said, what do you not understand? I have four kids, right? Like you suffer the loss of things, maybe golf, maybe a job, but you suffer the loss of things. But it is a high calling to be a father to your children. You know, at one of the interviews of this father who pushed his son around, at one of the ends of it, he says this, and it struck me very deeply. He said, people always talk about uh, all that I sacrificed for Patrick. But for me, it is not a sacrifice. I consider Patrick my personal hero. It's an absolute blessing that I wonder if I'm even deserving of. Let this be our attitude towards the calling of Christ. To suffer for Christ and say to ourselves, am I even worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus? Whether you are a father or not, you have been given a courageous calling Consider that calling. Count the cost of that calling, but continue in that calling, knowing that Christ has continued in his calling to suffer for you and for me. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you did not give up on your calling, but that you went to the cross and you endured the cross and you did not come down from the cross, but that you died on the cross, that you suffered for our sin to win us to yourself. Jesus, may we follow you May we, may we be shadows of you, shadows of the gospel to this world. May we suffer that your glory and renown and the gospel of grace may go forth. May we suffer, whether it be the ending of relationships or whether it be physical harm or even our very lives. May we suffer well for you. May we suffer with joy, knowing that you have given us a courageous calling, that you have not called us just to simply come and to live and to eke out existence, but to be part of a grand story that spans all of eternity and ends in your glory. And so, Lord, pray that you would give us the strength to fulfill your calling in our lives this day. Lord, as we turn to your table, we are reminded we are reminded of your calling to suffer and that you would suffer for our sin and you pay the price for us, God, and that you would give us new life in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, even as we, we hold these elements in our hands, let us be reminded that we are called to suffer, to suffer for your great name, 
And may we count ourselves not even worthy to suffer for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.